Good morning. Thank you guys. Man, it's good to sing together again. Welcome everybody joining us from home. Love you guys. We miss you. Let's start off today with an important reminder. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So please turn in your Bibles to God's inspired and profitable law that delights and brings blessing. Uh, Genesis chapter 19. As you're turning there, let's also keep in mind the main idea from the previous chapter. Chapter 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I wonder how we will answer that question after today, we have been talking about justice, not just because our world is talking about justice, but because providentially the text we find ourselves in, while the world is all about justice, is also all about justice. But as we saw last week, and we'll see again this week, uh, the justice of the world is often quite different than the justice of the word. Genesis 18 and 19 are about divine justice. We've seen God command his man, Abraham, righteous Abraham, in 1819 to command his children to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and justice. So God's people are commanded to do justice. And then in the very next verse, God goes on to reveal to Abraham, Abraham the very great and grave sin of Sodom that he is going to investigate, which then results in this strange exchange between Abraham and God, and it is an exchange about the true nature of justice. Again, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And then Genesis 19. Judgment. Terrible judgment. Hard to read judgment. Destruction, death, life wiped out. So chapter 18 is all about justice. Chapter 19 is all about judgment, which is the outworking of God's justice. And so, as we come to this heavy passage, we want to come humbly, but we also want to come expectantly. We come trusting that God is good, and thus everything that God does is good. And so, then, we come desirous to understand the goodness of God and what he does, even here, and then records here, for us to hear today. Why? Why is this so important? Of all the things that God could have recorded for us and given to us? Why does he want to give us this and want us to know this specific thing? Why judgment? And how in the world is what we see in Genesis 19 an expression of justice? The very thing that our whole world is crying out for today. That's what we're going to try to start to sort out. Uh, This is a hated story today. Let's be clear. God's people don't get to hate what God does. It's just simple as that. Sometimes, though, our response is to be a little bit embarrassed by what God does. Sometimes it is to assume that we would have done a little bit differently, and by differently, though we'd never say it, we mean a little bit better. And so we sort of hope to just sweep this whole thing under the rug, or we trip over ourselves, apologizing for the, this currently culturally offensive story. Listen, we cannot do that either. The people of God are not embarrassed by the works 
of God, especially this work, because this is actually a very important work, and this is an important story, and I'm going to argue that this story is a sort of microcosm for the whole story, right? Contained in this short story of what God is doing here is the long story of what God is doing always. You could argue that the story of Sodom is the story of the Bible in miniature, and, and if this is just a short summary story of the long, old, old story, and that story is good, well, then this story must be good as well. Because this, in this story, God is acting and doing no differently than he is doing in the whole story. And what is that? What is God doing in the whole story? Think about it for a second. What is the main point of the whole story, the whole thing? What is the Bible about? Well, we know it's about God. And we know it's about God's self-revelation. Right? God is making himself known. Why? So that he can be seen and known and glorified. I think the first petition of the Lord's Prayer helps us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's not a word that we use or even understand. <laughs> hallowed. What does it mean? What are we actually praying for in that first uh, and foremost petition? Hallowed is the verb uh, from the same Greek word for holy. For God's name to be hallowed means for God. Name just represents God and all that he is. It means for God to be seen as holy and acknowledged as holy, praised as holy, and treated as holy. And if holiness is sort of the summary attribute of God, all that God is, in all of his transcendent otherness and greatness, all that it is that makes him God, his perfect purity, his overwhelming beauty, then for God to be hallowed is for God as all of that to be known and honored and worshipped. It is for God to be glorified. And that's what God is doing in the whole story from beginning to end. He is indescribably holy, and the display of that is his overwhelming glory, God's internal holiness cannot help but be seen and shown, and it radiates out as his glory. That's the first and most important thing that we are commanded to pray for, because he is the first and most important thing. And that's what God is doing always. And he is the center of everything. He's the origin of everything. He's the goal of everything. And so he speaks to reveal, and then he acts to reveal. He acts to reveal his glory, and he acts to reveal his glory primarily in two ways. <laughs> Through an astonishing display of justice and mercy. God reveals himself through his works of justice and mercy, with the justice highlighting the mercy, and all of that then emphasizing and displaying his great glory. This is the point that I was trying to make last Sunday and in Bible study. Revelation. God tells his people what he is doing. Always. God has kindly told us what he is always doing. And since he's sovereign, we've got to get this. Everything happens. Happens according. Everything that happens happens according to his will. Everything that happens is as he decrees and chooses and desires it to happen. Therefore, everything that happens is what God is doing. Ultimately. There are a lot of particulars. There's lots of details. But we know the big picture. We know what God is doing. God is always glorifying himself through acts of justice and then acts of mercy. Or through judgment and salvation. God is always punishing his enemies and saving his people. Always. And he is doing that to most perfectly display who he is and his grand glory so that he would be seen and honored as only he justly deserves. And that's what God is doing in the story of Sodom 
and Gomorrah. This is the display of God's glory through both justice and mercy, through both judgment and salvation. God destroys his enemies and God delivers his people. And in so doing, he is glorified. That's the point of this story. And so the question then is, the challenge before us is, can we see the glory of God in the judgment of the wicked? Can we affirm as God's people that what God, the God that we love and follow and worship, can we praise him for what he does here? Did you catch what the people were praising God for in Revelation 19? They were praising him for his good and righteous and just judgment. I think we're a little bit uncomfortable for that. But think about it. He is perfectly good, which must then mean that he can only and always does act perfectly good, which must then mean that what God does here in this chapter is perfectly good. All right, so this is God's glory and judgment that we're going to look at. This is supposed to serve as a warning. This is what God thinks of sin and evil. This is what God is going to do for all who are not his. So repent. This is supposed to be a comfort. Look at how good God is protecting and preserving his people by punishing their enemies. So church, rest. And this is supposed to be a cause for worship. Everything God does is good and for his glory. So rejoice. So here's what we're going to do. This is a big text. Um, that was a big intro. Uh, the text is big in that it's long, but it's also big in that it's weighty and significant. We just cannot cover what needs to be covered in this text in one uh, sermon. Uh, so we're not taking the, the sabbatical starting tomorrow that we were going to. It seems like a bad time to disappear for a long time. Uh, but we're still going to head down and take the two Sundays for our normal uh, vacation. So Pastor Mike will be preaching next week. Uh, Henry's going to be preaching for the first time in this pulpit in two weeks, and I'm very excited about that. Um, so we've got this week, then we've got a two-week gap, and then we're going to come back to the passage. So what I want to do this week is simply step back, and I want to look at judgment in general. We're going, to st- we're going to look at the text. We're going to read the text. We're not going to get into all the details of the text yet. But I want us to first focus on God. And I want to focus on our, our problem before him and his response to that problem. I want us to try to start and try to understand why God acts the way that he does. Why God judges so frequently in scripture. And then why we see God's people frequently praising him for that. So what we're going to do is this week is we're just going to look at the nature of judgment in general. Uh, Well, then next time we need to come back and we need to look at the nature of the specific sin that instigates this judgment in Genesis chapter 19, homosexuality. I have commentaries that entirely skip over the nature of the sin of Sodom. Uh, Listen, we we cannot do that. Uh, This text is here for a reason. So we need to wisely but boldly look at why God reacts in this way in response to the sin of homosexuality. We need to understand how clearly the Bible speaks against it as sin and why. And what I think is generally missed in this conversation, wait for it, you know what's coming, is covenant. Why? Keep context. This is going to be fun. Why is homosexuality singled out here in the context of the covenant? In the context of the promised seed and in God's promise to bless the nations in Abraham. Chew on that. And we're going to come uh, look at that in a couple of weeks. Um, So on Tuesday, I had four points. By Thursday, I was down to three points. Uh, Yesterday evening, I was down to one point. Um, Judgment. That's all we're going to look at here. Uh, God eventually judges all sin. As we've been going through Revelation, I've been somewhat convinced that I think we struggle somewhat with the concept of the judgment 
of God. I think we maybe tend to judge God for the judgment of God. Um, So let's spend a sermon on God and what he is doing here and try to understand why this is important and good. Uh, So let me read the text for you, uh, finally. Uh, Genesis chapter 19. It's really long. Uh, So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. uh, So we kind of see the beginning. We we see uh, what God is doing. Uh, Then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 23 and just read a short section there. So we'll read two snippets that will give us kind of the big idea of what we're going to look at today. And then we'll come back and read the rest of it next time. Um, So look there at Genesis chapter 19. You can follow along. Uh, I'll read for you. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, and they, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. And the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else, sons-in-laws, daughters, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place." Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Skip down to verse 23. Let's jump to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife uh, behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. If you would, let's stop there. Let's bow and go before the Lord um, in a word of prayer. Father, help us now, please. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, that includes preaching your word. That includes understanding uh, your word. Father, some of us are already uncomfortable um, with this word. 
Father, this is a, a heavy word, but it is your word. That means that it's here for a reason. That means you have given it to us. That means it is true and right and, and good. So, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, I pray that you would work on your will um, through your word. I pray that you would greatly challenge our conceptions of you and, and who you are and how you should operate. I pray that you would greatly challenge our conceptions of sin and how we treat it and, and how we uh, approach uh, the sin that we often think is not really that big of a deal. Uh, Father, there are a lot of things that need to be done uh, through this text. and I cannot do them. And so we ask uh, that you would work now in our hearts and our minds. Show us your glory. Show us uh, the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to hate sin. Help us to love the Savior of our sin. Father, help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so your only point, God always eventually judges all wickedness. That's all I want to convey and unpack. Um, That's a somewhat unnecessarily wordy point. Uh, Good writers ardently avoid adverbs. I just used a lot of them. Why? Well, not a good writer yet, but also in part because the text is going out of its way to convey comprehensiveness. Look look at verse 5. Look at the repetition of verse 5. We see the men, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people. To the last man, right? Comprehensiveness. Then we saw it in verse 25. God overthrew the cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants. Right? What we're seeing here is the totality of the wickedness and then the corresponding totality of God's judgment. He always judges all wickedness eventually. Let's look at the first three verses and just set a little bit of the context. This won't be the most expositional of all sermons, but we'll be in the text for a couple weeks, so we'll come back to it. But remember, there's been two angels. Uh, They have come to Sodom. Uh, These are the two angels that were with the Lord God, the Son, in the previous chapter. Remember, God and these two angels have come to Abraham. And God has come to Abraham to do two things. To reaffirm his covenant promise of the seed and of the Son. And then to affirm his covenant justice. And so back in 18, verses 20 and 21, we read, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so the two angels head off as God stays behind to talk with Abraham. Remember, those verses, that exchange with God and Abraham, are not about the intercession of Abraham, but about the justice of God. God is not bargaining with Abraham. You cannot bargain with God. God is using this conversation with Abraham to make it very clear that what he is about to do is the justice that they're talking about. God is establishing the justness of his actions. And notice that he establishes the justice of his actions uh, first by confirming the injustice of their actions. So none of what we've read is, is arbitrary. This is not blanket, baseless accusation. God's justice is based upon evidence. Why? Why is that so important? Well, it's because this is the very heart of what justice is. Words matter. Uh, definitions matter, especially today. Uh, My scripture reading this morning had me in Psalm uh, 82 or 83, and it's God talking about hearing his people speak in a foreign tongue, uh, talking about idolatry and the pursuit and worship of other gods. There's a little bit of that going on uh, right now, Uh, not in literal foreign languages, but in the type of language and the rhetoric that we are using and that we are adopting. Let's be careful with words. God is holy, 
And as we've established, since God is holy, he is righteous. Right? So he's, he's right. He is in perfect um, accordance with his perfect standard, which can only be himself. And since he is right, he always then acts rightly. He always acts justly. God is righteous, and so all his actions are justice. He always acts in accordance with perfect justice, which means here's why the evidence thing is so important. Here's what God's justice is. God always gives everyone exactly what they are due, what they deserve based upon their actions. That's justice. Proverbs 24, 12. Uh, Will he not repay man according to his works? That's just simply what justice is. This is distributive justice, it's often called um, in theological circles. Distributive justice. That's important. And again, here's why words and definitions are so important. And here's why we need to be so careful. The cultural, current cultural concept of social justice is also sometimes called distributive justice. But that means something very different than theologians mean when they talk about God's justice as distributive justice. So we can use the same words and mean entirely different things. Current social justice is redistributive justice, right? Words are important, right? Social justice means a specific thing, right? So what we're trying to establish is that justice means something specifically in God's word. It means this giving what a person is due. It means equal treatment under the law, equal opportunity under the law. Where that does not exist, that needs to and must be Addressed, right? There needs to be justice. Currently, though, what's going on, social justice, as the world defines it, is not about equality of opportunity, but equality of outcome, right? So it sees any difference and assumes it must be a result of discrimination. And then the state gets involved and it's about uh, solving any difference by the redistribution of resources, right? That's what the current meaning of distributive justice means. You have Oppressor and oppressed, power, privilege, you pursue justice by redistributing resources and power and all of those things. That's not what's happening here. That's not what we mean when we say God's justice is distributive. Maybe one day we're going to get into that and tackle it. We don't have time. God's justice being distributive means that God distributes. He gives out. He deals to each according to what he is due or deserves based upon his actions. And theologians have tended to talk about God's justice then being worked out in two ways. We have the distribution of reward and the distribution of punishment. There is remunerative justice. I cannot pronounce that word. God rewards the righteous. Psalm 58, 11. There is a reward for the righteous. And then retributive justice. God punishes the wicked. Romans 2, 8. For those who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Right, so God's justice flows out in two streams. Remunerative justice is an expression of God's love. Retributive justice is an expression of God's wrath. This is God's justice. He always acts in perfect accordance with the standard of his perfect, holy, and righteous character. He rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. Remember Abraham's concern uh, back at the end of chapter 18. Abraham's concern was not what was going to happen to the wicked. Abraham understands the nature of justice. Abraham understands what it is that the wicked deserve. Abraham's concern was 1825. Far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as 
the wicked. You see, Abraham's concern there is, is justice, that the righteous be treated uh, uh, as righteous and that the wicked be treated as the wicked. It would be unjust for them to be treated in the same way. And so God comes in his justice to examine the Sodomites, not so that he can determine if their wickedness is deserving of judgment. He knows, right? He's God. Uh, but so that he can demonstrate to Abraham and to us that their wickedness is deserving of what is about to happen. And guys, listen, we've known this was coming. Moses has been preparing us for this. If you get to chapter 19 and you're just shocked by what happens, well, then you haven't been paying attention to the story. Sodom was introduced to us back in chapter 13. Remember there where Abraham and Lot separated and Lot chose Sodom. And we were warned there. There was foreshadowing. There was good writing. We were being signaled that something is not right and that something is coming. Chapter 13, verse 10. Lot sees how good the land is. Parenthetical note. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That was six chapters ago. 13, verse 13. 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So you see, that's why we are where we are. That and that alone is the only reason for what is about to happen. Uh, back to chapter 19. So there's these two angels. God is establishing justice. He's demonstrating that justice by coming in to examine uh, the wickedness of the city. They come in. Lot's in the gate. That's significant. We'll tackle that next time. Why is Lot in the gate? He sees them. Uh, he shows them some hospitality, uh, kind of a bit like Abraham in the previous chapter. We'll look at Lot in great detail next time. And then Lot invites them to come in and stay with him. Why? Is he just being nice? Is he just being a good guy? Uh, well, I don't know. They deny his request. It's a test. They say, no, we'll stay the night in the town square. Verse 3, but he pressed them strongly. Why? Well, because he knows, right? Lot knows Sodom. Lot knows what is coming. Listen, he knows, but he's still here. Keep that in mind. But he knows. He knows the strangers are not safe in Sodom. And so he presses these men, and they agree, and they go home with him. Verse 4. We've already seen the comprehensiveness. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surround the house. That's, that repetition is there on purpose. Everybody. All of them are bad. Verse 5. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And listen, we, we know what that means. We will work through this in great detail the next time. Uh, we'll look at the recent attempts to try and reinterpret this story. We'll walk through and explain how people try to explain this away. But it cannot be done within the text. The sin is clear. This is, this is homosexual gang rape. Some of you are just uncomfortable with me even saying that word. But it's here. This is what it is. And Lot's response and horrific offer make it clear what this is. Verse 7. Do not act so wickedly. He knows that what they're doing is wickedness. And then there's verse 8. It's hard to even read. Verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. So no and no have to mean the same thing. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. You feel that a little bit, right? That, that distaste, that disgust. Uh, I, I hate that verse. I hate what Lot does there. As the father of four daughters, 
who I am desperate to get back to and sneak into their room tonight at about midnight and give them a kiss. I hate this verse. And we should hate this verse. You know, that feeling that you're feeling, that's justice. That's, that's the evidence that you are made in the image of God. There is no justice without that. Uh, what Lot does here is horribly wrong. And we're going to come back and try to unpack this next time. Calvin says it best. He should have rather endured a thousand deaths than have resorted to such a measure. Amen. But here's the disconnect. That feeling that I think all of us feel, that outrage that we have toward what Lot does here, it's, it's only a glimpse. It is a bare shadow of God's outrage uh, towards all sin and toward what Sodom does here. Both of these things are sin. They are both of them wickedness. The problem is that our culture is glad to call one wicked while calling the other wicked. Calling homosexuality a sin is almost, and in all likelihood, what will soon be a hate crime. Uh, it was four or five years ago, I was at a preaching thing that Pastor Ed was teaching, and he said, I think before my ministry is done, it will be illegal to talk about the sin of homosexuality from the pulpit. Uh, he's not a young man, uh, so he's only got a few more years. So I'm kinda, I think he's right. I think it's, I think it's coming. Um, but again, it's, it's here in the text. And so we have to look at what God's word says about this. Because again, God's people are not ashamed of God's word and works. All right, so there's, just, there's great sin all over this passage from Sodom and from Lot as well. Again, we'll get to Lot and we're going to look at the nature of the sin of Sodom next time. But I want us to focus for the rest of our time on God's great response to this great sin. Look at verse 13. The angels are trying to get Lot and his family out of the city, which is proven quite difficult. Uh, for we are about to destroy this place because, and here's the reason, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Skip down to 24 again. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. Verse 28, Abraham looks out, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. That's the story, very quickly. In chapter 18, we have this long discussion about justice. Chapter 19, we have total death and destruction. Chapter 18, justice. Justice is God giving uh, to everyone that which is his due. Chapter 19, Judgment, God giving to Sodom, death, and destruction. Therefore, I'm just thinking logically here, since God is God, which means holy, righteous, and good, that must then mean that what he does here in chapter 19 is holy and righteous and good. If 1825 shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right is followed by 19, death and destruction, then that must be Right. That must be justice because God cannot. He is incapable of doing otherwise. The judgment of God is very simply the expression of the justice of God. That's what God's judgment is. And we, we've been working through the book of Revelation, which I'm, just, I'm realizing is such a tragically ignored book. And I've been guilty of that. And we're trying to correct it. I have been blessed greatly and benefited greatly by our study of the book. And we've seen all of these cycles of seven churches, seals, Trumpets. We haven't gotten to the bowls yet. The bowls are coming. In chapter 16, verse 1, we read the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This is what the whole book of Revelation is about. 
God is pouring out his righteous wrath on the wicked. And listen to verse 5. Right in the middle of all this wrath, uh, an angel proclaims, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. You see the connection? God is the Holy One. Therefore, all that he acts is justice, and the thing that he is doing and acting is judgment. God always eventually judges all wickedness. And Genesis 19 is a picture of that. It is a reminder of that, a warning. This is what God thinks of sin. All sin. This is what sin is due, what it deserves. All sin. This is what every single person who has ever lived is due and deserves. This is how the New Testament applies this story as well. Jude, verse 7, says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is here as an example of God's judgment, which Jude calls punishment of eternal fire. You know, uncomfortable, yet we don't talk about this. Some of you are thinking right now, man, I wish he would stop talking about this. Maybe you're talking about it too much. No, kind of what I'm convicted to try to convey is, I want you to understand how, listen, this is the story. This is, this is the whole thing. There is no story without this. This is the point of the story. The whole story, the Bible, reality, is a story. It's a story of judgment. The very first chapter, in the beginning, God created everything. He is king and Lord. He is God and good. He is blessing, abundance, generosity, relationship. He made us. We were made by him and we were made for him. Two chapters later, Genesis 3, sin. We reject him. And what happens? Judgment, chapter 3, against the serpent, man, and the woman. What happens next? Genesis chapter 4. Judgment against Cain and his line. What happens next? Genesis 5. Judgment. And he died. And he died. And he died. What happens next? Genesis 6 and 7 and 8. Judgment. The flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 19 is the same as Genesis 6. What happens next? Genesis 9, God's judgment against Ham and Canaan. What happens next? Genesis 11, God's judgment against the whole world, again, at the Tower of Babel. Book of Exodus, God's judgment against Egypt. Book of Numbers, God's judgment against Israel. Joshua, God's judgment against Canaan. Judges, God's judgment against Israel. On and on and on. I could go. It's the whole story. Have you ever read the Psalms? They're so nice and they're so sweet, so positive, encouraging, K-love. Have you ever ever really read the Psalms? Have you ever read the Psalms? The very first one. We love the first Psalm. Now, Peter used to say, I I love it. This is is the Psalm. These are the verses I most repeat and rehearse in my head. Blessed. This is about blessing. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. So it's such a beautiful picture of abundance and of fruitfulness and of life. But it keeps going. Verse 4. But the wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. First Psalm, the wicked will perish. Like Genesis 3.15, that lays out for us the rest of the story by telling us that there are two and only two groups of people. Everything is about identity and groups and intersections right now. Scripture says ultimately there's only two groups, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Psalm 1 affirms the same thing, that there are two and only two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 1, the wicked will perish. Psalm 2, the king, what does he do? What does he think of the wicked? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 3, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 5, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 7, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Psalm 9, you have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Psalm 11, the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. Hey, you want me to keep going? I, I could. There's 139 more psalms. And many of them are like that. Did you know that? What do you think of that? And then after the psalm come the 17 prophets, which are just, again, basically all about God's pronouncement of judgment. Right now we're studying the book of Revelation, which is basically all about God's judgment. And it is Jesus himself who talks about judgment and hell more than anyone, because he is God. He is the one talking with Abraham in chapter 18. And he is the one as the judge executing the judgment in chapter 19. The story of the Bible is the story of God. The thrice holy God. You just loudly and joyfully sang the wonderfully uplifting hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. I bet it felt good. Again, it's so good to be back together singing God's praises. But I tricked you. Do you realize what you just sang? And, and what you affirmed. You sang the word holy dozens of times. You praised God for his holiness. Well, you know, justice is simply a mode of God's holiness. It is an outworking or expression of his holiness. Justice necessarily follows from his holiness. And so when you praise God for his holiness, you then praise him for his justice, his rightness, his acting perfectly and only in accord with his perfect holiness. And that acting is expressed in his judgments, the judgment of Genesis 19. And so then you sang, all thy works shall praise thy name. Did you mean that? Do you believe that? That all his works bring praise to his name and glorify him, including this work, including his work of judgment against the wicked. The story of the Bible is the story of God. It is the story of the world, of the world's rejection of him, and of his response. And that response is justice, and that justice manifests itself in judgment. 
cannot skip it. You cannot ignore it. The story makes no sense without it. The gospel makes no sense without it. Jesus makes no sense without it. Jesus is the judge. And so whether you like it or not, what cannot be argued, you're like, why are we talking about judgment? Genesis 19 is about judgment. And as a microcosm of the whole story, it's about, which is about the righteous justice of God manifested in the judgment of sin and the pouring out of his wrath against all wickedness, specifically represented here in the wickedness of the people of Sodom. And scripture says that is right and good. But we struggle to get this, I think for many reasons. I think in part is because we struggle to get God. Uh, we still struggle to see him as he was revealed in Scripture, we, we, we struggle to grasp his transcendent holiness and his beautiful glory. I think the American church since the Second Great Awakening has done a great disservice to us by failing to teach us of the glory and the majesty and the transcendence of God. Our understanding of the person of God is somewhat deficient. And so then when we see this God, of which we are already somewhat deficient in understanding... We see him saying that he hates the wicked and pouring out his judgment in the total annihilation of a city. Well, we just, we just don't get it. We're embarrassed by it. We're somewhat offended by it. Uh, we'd rather ignore it or find some way to reinterpret it. But we can't. Can't. It's here. You cannot believe in the God of the Bible without believing in the God of judgment and wrath. Because it's, it's everywhere. It's central to the story. And judgment is everywhere because God is everything. That's what we fail to get. He made us. He made everything. That gives him authority over us. Uh, and everything uh, to do, or everything that we are called to do is what he has called us to do. And he is allowed to and has the authority and the sovereignty to do with his creation what he pleases. But that would be enough right there. But that's not only everything. He also made us for a very specific purpose. He made us for him. He made us for relationship with him. Here's why the covenant stuff is so important. He made us to love him and to be loved by him uh, so that he could pour out his infinite kindness and generosity on us so that we could be like him and so that we could be with him, reflect him to the world, rest in him, rejoice in him. He is reality itself. He is life itself. He is goodness itself. He is everything. He is God. And sin rejects all of that. Sin rejects him. Sin is cosmic rebellion against the sovereign and good God. Uh, the God who owns us and who loves us, who made us to relate to us. In your sin, you have said to this God, I wish we could understand more for who he is. We have said to this God, no, you're not God. You are not good. Uh, you are not for me. I do not love you. I do not want you. I know better than you. I am better without you. I am better than you. That's what we're saying every time when we judge God's judgments. I am God. You are not. That's what we say every time we sin. To the one who is perfect in power and perfect in beauty and perfect in goodness, we say, no thanks. Not good enough. Not God. We need God to help us to understand what an affront this is. We're not getting into all the particulars of all the individual sin. Sin in its very nature is this. It is an assault on the infinitely holy and good and glorious person of God. And so since we have all of us done this, 
And he is what you just sang. You just affirmed all those things by singing holy, holy, holy. He has to and he must do something about sin. And that's all God's wrath is. It is his eternal hatred. We're uncomfortable with that word right now. It is his eternal opposition against all that is evil, against all unrighteousness, and against all injustice. The thing that our world is saying we must be against, God is perfectly against, rightly so. And there's nothing more unjust than seeing and knowing the God who made us, which you know him. Romans 1 says that everybody knows him, but then choosing to worship something else and rejecting him and choosing to worship yourself instead. This is the first and greatest command. Love God with everything you are because he is everything. And since we don't, all have sinned and fall short, then just judgment must be everywhere. Just open your Bible to any book and read it. This is what awaits everyone. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's justice. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's justice. God gives to everyone his due. And everyone's due is Genesis 19. This is a picture of what we all rightly deserve. And it's terrifying. I think it's, it's supposed to be. So, so what, do we, you know, what do we do with this? What do, what do we do with all of this judgment? How do we apply it? The first thing I would encourage you to do, because we never do this, is to meditate on it. It's actually to meditate on your sin. Uh, sit in it. See it. Look at passages like this and the book of Revelation and the flood. And see what God thinks of sin. See how he approaches uh, your sin. See how God treats it. Let this disturbing story wake you up and shake you up to the reality of God's right and righteous hatred for sin. And then second, let that then motivate you and drive you and compel you to flee from that sin and flee the wrath to come. You are holding on to some sort of sin right now, harboring it. Hiding it. You brought it into this room. You're, you're treasuring it. You're, you're deceiving yourself and convincing yourself that it's not that big of a deal. I think sometimes we're not that worried about sin is because we've so minimized God's justice and God's judgment. And we don't see this. But this is how the cross is what God thinks about sin. Genesis 19, the cross especially, shows us how big of a deal this is. What is that thing for you? Listen, men, just statistically, some of you were looking at pornography last night as you got ready and prepared to come to church this morning. How much porn has been consumed during this quarantine, even by professing Christian men? Men, it will consume you. This Genesis 19 is what God thinks of pornography. Get help. Come talk to Mike. Come talk to me today, if that's you, or whatever it is for you. And so then third, as that then motivates you and drives you to flee from your sin, pray that it would motivate you and drive you and compel you to flee from sin to the only Savior from sin. And maybe we're not all that compelled by the good news because we're not all that convinced of the bad news. All I desperately want you to see is how bad the bad news is, how infinitely good God is. 
And thus how eternally bad it is to reject that God, which also then shows us how much more good this God is than we even thought when he provides himself a way out of this judgment to come, when he himself provides the one way to be free from his just and righteous judgment. And again, we know that that is Christ, and that is Christ alone. And next time we're going to look at why this story is so important in light of the covenant. Remember, it's through Abraham that God is going to bless the nations. God blesses the nations through Abraham by bringing the Savior through Abraham. God has just reaffirmed his promise of a son, the son, the seed, Jesus Christ, in the previous chapter. And then God launches into his discussion and demonstration of justice as he pours out his judgment on one of those nations. And the two are directly connected. The first is the only way to avoid the second. The promise that God makes to Abraham is the only way to avoid the judgment that God pours out on Sodom. The son, the seed, is the only way to avoid the wrath. Because if God's glory is revealed in judgment, and it is, it's good when evil is punished and wrongs are righted. How much more glory, then, is revealed in God's mercy? When for those who are his, we receive not the judgment that is our due, that we deserve, we receive not justice, how is that possible? We are sinners. I hope you know that. I am. Uh, there must be justice. We're sinners. How does this happen? How can there be mercy? Again, it's, it's the Son. The Son who is a substitute. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. See the substitution there? Or it could be translated, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Everyone. Listen, that is your only hope. Right? The, the gospel, uh, the good news that the judge of all the earth, who always does what is just, has made a way for his evil, unjust people to be saved and for him to maintain his perfect justice. And he does it by he himself coming for his evil and unjust people in the person of Jesus Christ, the just one coming for the unjust, the just one dying for the unjust. Right? The gospel is quite simply that Jesus takes our place. Right? He takes our Genesis 19. Uh, the gospel would be Genesis 19, God moving his people out of the way of the destruction that is going to come on the, on the um, unrighteousness of Sodom and putting his own son, Jesus Christ, in the way. And he receives all the wrath and all the judgment in the place of God's people. He is punished so that we can be spared. Substitution. That's what God is doing. Jesus takes our justice. He takes what we are due and deserve, God's wrath. There must be justice. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God the Son himself, comes to stand in our place and take the wrath that we deserve. Freeing us then from the slavery and the penalty of sin and reconciling and restoring us to the God that we rejected. And it's all the more wonderful if we truly understand how bad off we were and how holy God is. God is not saying, oh, you know, no big deal. Don't worry about it. No, no, he's saying, big deal. Infinitely, eternally big deal. I'll worry about it. 
through the sending of my son to take on the eternal wrath that you deserve for your sin. That's what Genesis 19 is showing us. It is a picture of hell. And so when we don't get that, and when we instead get forgiveness and adoption and life and peace and identity and joy and on and on and on, that, that, that changes everything. Because again, what that does is then reunites us with the God who is everything, who is life. And you know what it must do, church? This must convince us that this is what awaits everyone out there apart from Christ. The more I read from the church at large of everything going on right now, the more I am not convinced that the church believes this. Uh, Genesis 19 awaits every sinner, rich and poor, uh, black and white, every sinner apart from Christ gets Genesis 19. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your best friend, everyone stands under the judgment of God. The sword will fall because he is perfect in holiness and justice. The penalty must be paid. And so either that individual will pay for it or Christ will pay it for them. And so for them, for that to happen and for them to know, they have to hear it. Romans 10. And this can only then happen if we tell them of Christ. Uh, we have, I, just think, I do think the church needs to re- repent. I think we need to repent of our failure to actually really care and believe this thing. I think I need to repent of my failure to actually care and believe this thing. That the only hope of sinners is the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. That if they hear of him and then by the grace of God, they repent and believe and turn from their sin and turn to them. Uh, Peter quoted Mark 8.36 on Sunday school. This is so important for these days. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. I was just reading Psalm 16. You are Lord. I have no good thing apart from you. In church, do we believe uh, that we give people no good thing? And ultimately, no ultimate good thing if we don't give them the Lord. That we ultimately profit them nothing if we don't give them the one who can save their soul. I'm convicted because I know I have a bunch of evangelism books that I'm taking with me on vacation. I'm reading about evangelism. I respond by reading books. Um, I I know that I don't often live like I believe that this chapter is true. I am preaching and speaking to myself. If we believed that Genesis 19 was a picture in miniature of what God is going to do to and for everyone who is separated from him. That's what we read in Revelation 19 and 20. If we believed that, we would live differently. We would act uh, differently. We would uh, see church and the purpose and role of church uh, differently. I just think it would have a major impact on how we live our lives um, and how we relate uh, to other uh, people. It affected me this week. I saw a guy I hadn't seen in three months. And I was like, well, I have to talk to him about Jesus. Um, it didn't go well. <laughs> I don't think he got it. Um, but I was at least by the grace of God was compelled by this thing that I knew that I was going to preach. Uh, that Genesis 19 is going to happen to every single person if they do not hear of Christ and then repent and then believe in the Jesus Christ who saves sinners. And so all I want to do is convince myself and as your pastor want to help convince you that God's word is very, very clear. That God is holy and he is just and his justice will demonstrate itself 
in the judgment. And judgment uh, will be poured on out everyone uh, who is a sinner, which is everyone who has not been saved from that sin uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. Church, those are our marching orders. Uh, That's what defines us. Uh, That's what makes us who we are. That's what determines what we are for. And so I'm just going to stop rambling. Uh, may, we, may we see the horrible reality of the just judgment of God. Brothers, it's there. Like, you know you can get a new car and then you start to see that car everywhere. Like, wow, everybody bought this car. No, it's always been there. Once you see this, you'll start to see it everywhere. The horrible reality of the justice of God poured out in the judgment of God against sin. May we then delight and rejoice in the wonderful reality of the free grace of God that is offered to us um, through Jesus Christ. Do we delight in him? Do we delight in the one who has saved us from Genesis 19? And then may we live our lives for him, live them entirely to bring him glory, and to do that by telling as many people as possible of the only hope of rescue in this, we cannot argue, broken and hopeless world. We're seeing what's happening. We're seeing this in our world right now. And now here we're seeing the solution. And the solution is Jesus Christ. Uh, may we be convinced of that. Um, and listen, if you do not know this Jesus Christ, find Mike, find myself, find someone sitting around you. And come, uh, talk to us about this uh, today. We believe that the Bible is clear, that this is the reality that awaits everyone apart from Jesus. Uh, but there is life and forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. And so we want you to know him. Let me, let me close you in this time now with, with a word of prayer. Father, help us now. I have said many words. Father, I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that it would be in no way clouded by my words. Father, help us to see the reality of, of who you are. Help us to see the reality of who you are that works itself out and what you do, which is you judge sin, and it is right, and it is good, that the just judge of all the earth right wrongs and punish evil. Father, help us to understand justice as you reveal it to us, as you are the standard of it, and as your law reveals it to us. Father, convict us of our sin and forgive us for those of us who are in Christ, forgiven already. For our sins spared this judgment, how quickly we are to run back uh, to the sin that separates. Father, help us to hate sin. Father, help us to have a great distaste and disgust um, for all sin. Help us to see it um, as you see it, Lord. And then help us to respond accordingly. Father, I pray that you would make us holy. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty, the goodness of holiness, of, of living life like you, of being like you and being with you. Lord, Father, I ask that you would show us Jesus Christ, who is both judge and who is both the one who comes and puts himself on the line and suffers and dies in our place so that we can be declared righteous and we can be forgiven. Father, forgive us for how cool and apathetic we often are about this, the one truth that matters. And so, Father, compel us. Father, I can get all worked up and I can talk as long as I want and Father, I can try to do everything that I can. Father, it's you and it's you working in our hearts and in our minds through your word. And so I ask that you would do that now. Uh, Father, make us like Jesus. 
Father, make us your ambassadors. Compel us and convince us um, that all who die apart from you spend eternity in hell. And then, Father, move and motivate us to love our neighbors well uh, by sharing the good news of the Jesus Christ in whom they can find rest and peace and life and joy for all eternity. Father, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.